Welcome to this edition of Recap This Week. I'm your host, Sasha Estrella Jones, once again, sitting in for Joshua Hyde. Around the table, we have the lovely Anna, who will once again be covering trends this week. Really excited to hear what you have for us. And of course, our boss lady, Francine, who will be doing this week's polls. Our guest of the week, who we're very honored to have on, and thank you for taking the time to come out, is Carrie Taff, a certified exercise physiologist and PhD student in health and human performances. We have a lot to get into, so I want to say a huge welcome to the whole team. And let's just jump right on in. How is everyone doing today? We're good. How are you doing? I'm, you know, I'm tired. If we're keeping it real, I am yeah, tired. Yeah, I'm tired too. I don't know. I woke up and my face was swollen. I had like an allergic reaction to life. <laughs> <laughs> so I took something. I'm a little loopy, but I'm, I'm feeling great. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Carrie? How are you doing? I'm doing great today. I'm uh, excited to be here and to talk to you ladies. Yeah, we're excited. We we have some interesting conversations as you will soon come to see. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to hear what you're going to bring out. With that being said, let's pass it over to Francine. Can you tell us about this week's polls? Okay, this week's polls. What we're covering this week is a poll about Governor Cuomo, and I'll just read that quote to you. Um, I'm sorry, read that poll to you. And then I'll read a comment or two uh, that was submitted regarding that poll. All polls, just for everyone's knowledge, are listed every Friday by 7 a.m. on our Facebook page. So please feel free to reach out to our Facebook page. Feel free to leave a comment. If you don't want to leave it publicly, feel free to inbox us. Okay, so here we go. This is the poll. Governor Andrew Cuomo, Democrat of New York, has been accused of 11 counts of sexual assault and harassment. And in the court, that is in quotations, of public opinion, um, he is guilty of those accusations. Now, many in his party are asking him to step down. Now, this is old news by now, but this is where we were at the time. However, former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who supports Cuomo, released the following statement. Um, and here's the crux of the issue. Cuomo may be guilty, but we used to have trials before convictions, Giuliani tweeted Tuesday night. That's what Cuomo's Democrat allies denied President Trump. There would be poetic justice if they did that to Cuomo, but it would be unjust, dangerous, and entirely un-American, end quote. Now, do you believe, this is where the question began, do you believe that the calls for resignations were premature and should only happen, happen after a guilty verdict from an actual court of law, or do you believe that there was enough information to ask and expect the governor of New York to resign? Now, there were several comments on here, and a lot of them kind of, kind of rallied again around one primary comment, and I'll read that one comment from one person on here. This person says, I'm good with asking him to resign. I don't love that national politicians are getting involved for different reasons, but in New York, uh, Democrats want to pressure him, then I'm okay with that. And I don't think his guilt or criminality is even relevant. At minimum, his behavior is embarrassing as hell for his party. That's all the justification needed. If they think he's become a political liability, then I think they have every right to ask him to resign. And, and again, there were several just high fives to that comment. But I'd like to hear from each of you. Do you all believe that a person, any person who's in public office can be accused of a thing without having it vetted out in a court of law? 
should be expected to resign because it looks badly, smells badly. What What is the litmus test that you all would require? So I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, I don't think that necessarily one is expected to resign just from making one mistake or two mistakes. But in this particular case, there are 11 allegations against him. And I think if we further have these individuals in office in a public setting where they are making rules and deciding over um, important facts, that they should resign. Because who is to say that he won't um, play a role in the cases against him if he's still in office? That's a good, that's a good point. Anna, do you have a response or a thought on this issue? I think it was a really interesting question just because um, this came up or, you know, anytime it seems like allegations are made of sexual harassment against somebody in public office, people do say like, yeah, they should be taken to court first before we judge them. Um, But I mean, I think that we've seen over and over again that the court uh, doesn't always actually help victims of, of sexual violence and harassment. And so it's like, even if even if he was even if we did take him to court first before he resigned mm-hmm. is it going to change anything no and i'm happy that he just went ahead and resigned mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um for me that's everything and he i feel like his um team even kind of said like yes he was too being too warm and affectionate and familiar with people so that right there is almost an admission of guilt um and then he went ahead and resigned so Thank God, but I really do hope that uh, he he's taken to court and admits his wrongdoings publicly then again. Mm-hmm. Okay, because in this way, those folks that accused him of this, they really haven't gotten that thing called justice, really, exactly. have they? And Sasha, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, I think there were good points that were already made, some that echo how I feel. Uh, What I caution is that sometimes this can backfire on us. So in the case of sexual harassment, I am always here to believe survivors. So yes, when more than one woman comes, you know, has brave enough to vocalize that they were harassed in various ways and degrees by Governor Cuomo, we need to rally and support them. And I do think he needed to step down, although, and we'll get into it in the second segment of the show, he didn't step down, in my opinion, because it was the right thing to do. There is a big difference between resignation and impeachment and what it allows you to do with your political career. I'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. But what I want to caution us against, and the irony of Giuliani calling it so un-American, is that it's actually not un-American for people to be judged before there is a court of law. And oftentimes, when those people are historically marginalized people, Black folk, brown folk, queer folk, immigrant folk, et cetera, it usually doesn't work in their favor. So I bring that up because I'm like, in this case, yeah, Cuomo was wrong, hands in hand, you know, through. And also the 
investigation showed that. But then I think, well, what if this was spin and it was a black, you know, politician or a brown politician or a queer politician? Could this set a precedent that is dangerous? Yeah, and that's kind of where I think uh, some other folks were having a discussion is the precedent that it they're that it they're afraid that it might set although i haven't talked to anyone who disagrees with him stepping down um uh in light of the situation and some people apparently who are from the area um i guess he has a reputation of being very i don't want to say handsy but affectionate is the term that that you used sasha so <laughs> yeah but that, that was actually anna uh, who used that which was oh, the anna. way of, of saying it i'm actually from right. new york uh, i live here currently born and raised new yorker and yeah he has a reputation but let us not also forget this isn't the only scandal he's had within the past year he signed a multi-million dollar book deal about the handling of the pandemic during the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, that that was kind of question mark. Yeah, yeah. There was also the U.S. Department of Justice investigating him for the nursing home deaths and to see did you actually accurately report COVID-related deaths in nursing homes. So he's already had things that has tarnished his reputation and. You know, some people, and including the ones who responded on this poll, feels that, hey, if the Democrats say that's enough, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, they're allowed to dismiss you from the party. Well, as far as the poll, that's it for me. Um, thank you all for hearing me out. I turn it yes, back over to you, Sasha. Thank you so much. Brought up a great question. And we'll circle around to some of the points you made. But let's pass it over to Anna now. What were the trends in this new cycle? Yeah, thank you. So I want to talk about the moratorium on evictions. So basically, the CDC issued a new eviction moratorium that ends October 3rd. There was a previous one that ended in July. Um, so before the Biden administration was kind of saying that they couldn't extend the moratorium after it ended in July because of a Supreme Court ruling. Um, however, they, they put a new one out and they say that it's it's significantly different enough. Um, I'm not sure exactly how at this time, but the Biden did push the CDC to consider its options to extend it. Um, and so, you know, the reason that it's in the news currently is because the opinions are super mixed on whether it is constitutional, constitutional or not. You know, the Supreme Court already said that the one in July couldn't really be extended for different reasons. And um, several judges are questioning its legality and also landlords are too. Um, so I guess I wanna hear everybody's thoughts on this. I mean, millions of people could have lost their homes during COVID without them saying, you know, you can't evict people right now. So um, what do you think? And also too, I wanna, I want to mention that this one ends October 3rd. So they started it um, in like August, beginning of August 6th. And then, um, so it's only going to last a couple months. I have a question. I'm not sure how it's different or what it's supposed to do for for people. I mean, is it just saying you don't have to worry about paying a certain expense or is it offering funds? I'm not really clear on the moratorium. Biden also said that there's millions of dollars that are going to to be released to landlords and renters. Gotcha. And, then, and then they also kind of said that um, even if there is pushback, 
of this, it's it's pretty much going to end before anything can actually happen. Then <laughs> <So. laughs> you love politics. Like, this may be unconstitutional, but by the time you get around to calling us out, it'll have passed. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure how it's different either. I didn't have time to, to, to really go over them. But I mean, in my mind, too, I'm like, it seems like it's the same thing. So yeah, so if the one is Yeah, I just it, it sounds like it's politics. Um, this is a tough one. I mean, on the one hand, of course, you want people to be able to stay in their homes. That's the practical side of it, right? Especially those who may be experiencing some sort of financial hardship. But the other side of it is that all landlords aren't rich people. And um, there are people who are in the same situation, honestly, who are experiencing financial hardship. So this is not a cut and dry um, issue in my mind. This is a complicated issue that has created real winners and real losers. And I, th I think we need to be careful about making people into bad guys sometimes, like, oh, the evil landlords, they're going to put people on the street. I think we need to just, you know, it, this is a tough season. No one planned a pandemic and no one thought everyone was going to either lose their jobs or stay home or get sick or any of this. We just, I, I think that we need to be a little bit more practical in our understanding of what this means but I also think we need to release dollars to to landlords I think that these processes the time that it takes to process this needs to be cut short so they can get what they need I agree with you Francine especially you know on it's it's almost like we're caught between a rock and a hard place look if these were all high-rise buildings and they're owned by multi-million and billion dollar corporation individuals screw them you know, that's my philosophy. <laughs> they exploited us all to get that money. So what is it if they don't get a couple million back? However, that's not the case. And it puts us in this gray area. And what I also think about is when October comes, the same folk who haven't been able for reasons outside of their control to pay their rent, what's going to happen? Like they're not all of a sudden going to have all this rent out of poof, thin air. And what is our plan for that because that's really I'm like this is a band-aid but the bigger issue is the economic impact of COVID and we know you know from the stats COVID has disproportionately affected certain communities and that is where I'm like all right so what are we doing when it comes to housing difficulties as they related to marginalized communities and the way they've been adversely impacted by COVID and there as you know, in my understanding and from what I've read, not a clear cut answer on that. So yet again, it's a political bandaid. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it's only, it's such a short time period. What is going to happen? Sasha, I fully agree with you when you say we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, but I also think that right now the economy is struggling because people don't want to go back to work right so in three months from now these people are not going to suddenly have four five six seven eight months of rent saved up that they now can just pay their landlords so what about those landlords who like we said they're not multi-billionaires they're not corporations that is actually their job and that is actually their sole income right they maybe put all their eggs in one or two baskets 
and they're fixing up these houses, they're maintaining them so people do have some safe place to live. They've perhaps bonded with the tenants, they don't wanna kick them out, but they need to pay their bills and put you know, bread on their table as well. I don't feel, and maybe this is a little bit controversial, but I don't feel we need to continue helping people that are not paying their rent. Because if, even if you do evict someone, they are not going to be out on the street tomorrow. They will still have a month or two to get their crap together and pay. You know, it's not like people, I mean, we, we all lost our jobs, right? But the world has rebuilt. We cannot sit back and say COVID, 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 when there are health wanted signs everywhere. Mm. I mean, I, I yeah. No, 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 keep going, keep going. I just, I feel like at what point is this going to stop? We can continue to milk it and milk it and milk it for forever, essentially, because people don't want to go back to work because they make more money on unemployment or they don't want to go back to work because they are legit afraid of COVID or they don't want to go back to work because they are comfortable not working and still making enough money to pay their bills because they're not having to pay rent because they know they're not going to get evicted. Well, at what point are we going to understand this is actually crashing the economy? And just because we don't see it fatally crashing the economy right now, or maybe even in three months, think about one year from now. And I know this is not the same as 2008 when the economy crashed, but how long did it take to recover? It wasn't like 2009. Now we're all up and running again. I just feel it needs to stop. At some point we need to say, stop, set boundaries, get a job, pay your bills, pay your rent, because the, the landlords are not the bad guys. They just want to make their money too. I'm glad you brought up that point, Carrie. Thank you. You know, one of the things I love is, and we can see things differently, but you can call out and be like, hey, yeah, this might not be a popular opinion, but it's one that exists and one we should talk about. So based on what you said, my question to you would be, so what do you think is a realistic model? Because you brought up valid points that there are multiple reasons why people haven't gone back to work. Yes, I am going to admit unpopular opinion, but there is a segment of people who do make more from being on unemployment and have decided that decision. While I do not believe the numbers support that is the majority it's a segment that exists. I acknowledge that. Another point you made up, though, are the people who are genuinely scared to go back because of COVID. So what's the solution? If people aren't going back because they feel their work environments aren't safe for them, what can we do so that we're not putting landlords in this situation, but we're also ensuring that people feel safe enough to go back? So... This is a little fun fact you don't know about me. I grew up in Norway and Norway, Norway is a very socialistic country, right? So we, we take care of our, our people, but we kind of also tell our people what to do to put it in a very black and white manner, right? So I know that in America, there are so many more millions of people than there are in the, the small country of Norway. Um, I think a suggestion would be for those who are genuinely fearful 
or at greater risk of contracting COVID virus or greater risk for mortality from COVID, that they should be able to work at home. They should have some other um, method of making money to be able to pay their bills. Now, whether that is the government providing those methods, whether it's corporations privately owned providing those methods, whether it is the individual themselves creating some sort of opportunity. I mean, sell your shit that you have at home if you need money. Start an Etsy store if you need to make money. You know what I mean? There are so many ways. Isn't that the so-called quote unquote American dream, right? You have nothing, you make everything. There, there, if there is a will, there is a way. And I'm not saying that fear of COVID is not real because it is so real. And I know people who have lost people from COVID. I know people who have been genuinely sick because of COVID and are terrified of going back. And I'm a physiologist. I, I study pathologies in the body and how they affect us acutely and chronically. So I totally get it. And I want everyone to be safe. But also, why do I have to work so hard and pay my bills and pay my rent when, you know, Joe Schmo over here can sit at home collecting money and not be worried about getting evicted? I think we as a community need to come together and help create these opportunities so people can make money from home. Maybe we need some way of screening them. You know, are they at greater risk? Do, will they mentally have any issues if with fear if they go back into a workplace or can we do for example like bank of america does they have their little offices that are completely shut down you have to make an appointment to get in there they're behind a glass everything is taking precautions so they are minimalizing any risk of covid why can't we do that with other corporations I see. I like the points you brought up, the switching from, okay, even we might see the moratorium differently and have different opinions, but ultimately we have the same dilemma of what next. And your solution would be the focus on the what next has to be for making things like working from home more accessible to those who have legit fears or also for X, Y, or Z factors. It's more practical for them in these days to work from home. Thank you. I didn't even... My mind wasn't thinking there, but that's definitely something that needs to be talked about. And I think a challenge to a lot of corporations when folks are like, hey, working from home is better on so many, so many levels. And maybe the government needs to get involved in kind of putting a, a, a say the same way they did at moratoriums, having a policy from working from home. Absolutely. Yeah. Even if we look at it from a health perspective in terms of not COVID, but just in terms of um, corporations and corporate wellness programs, when their employees are happier and feel safer and feel heard, they are healthier. They have fewer days away from work. They cost the corporations less money. If we can figure that out in a quote unquote normal situation to deal with the everyday sickness that we deal with, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, mental health issues that people have dealt with way long before COVID and will deal with way long after COVID. Why can't we figure something out to deal with COVID and still have people work? 
could not agree could not agree more with you on that one like working does not have to be does not have to mean i should say poor mental or physical health and how do we figure that out and i think if covid has in one thing it's it's shedding light to issues like this uh we've talked about so much we definitely need to go to break uh but thank you anna for sharing uh this week's trend oh time out anna was that it <laughs> we talked about that for a long time, so that's okay. <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, thank you. I close it out. I'm like, oh, let's keep it moving, Sasha. Do oh, you please. stay with us as we head to the round table? Okay, perfect. Welcome to our round table discussion. If you have been listening to the news, reading the news, pretty much not living under a rock, you have heard about. New York Governor Cuomo's recent resignation. So there's been a lot of talk, a lot of opinions, but because I am concerned about facts and the sources, I want to go straight to what actually happened. So 5 months ago or really towards the beginning of the year, a little bit earlier than that, there started to be allegations against sexual harassment uh from Governor Cuomo. And at that point around March, the New York Attorney General Letitia James decided that an independent investigation was needed to decide did Governor Cuomo actually sexually harass said woman. So at that point, she appointed June Kim and Ann Clark to be the independent investigators. And over the past 5 months, they have reviewed over a whopping 74,000 documents including emails, texts, pictures. They interviewed 179 individuals including complainants, current and former members of the executive chamber, state troopers, state employees and those the regular interactions with Governor Cuomo. and this was what was concluded this is coming what i'm about to read straight from the new york attorney general's website for our listeners you can go on her website and read this too and i encourage everyone to do so as well as read the report to know for themselves what the facts were so as i'll read the independent investigation appointed by new york attorney general letitia james led by john kim and ann clark concluded that governor cuomo did sexually harass multiple women from 2013 through 2020 sexual harassment included unwanted and inappropriate groping kissing hugging and comments after nearly 5 months the investigators concluded that governor cuomo did harass these women further the governor and his staff took actions to retaliate against at least one former employee for coming forward with her story. Finally, the executive chamber fostered a toxic workplace that enabled harassment to occur and created a hostile work environment. The investigators find the governor Cuomo's actions and those of the executive chamber violated multiple state and federal laws as well as the executive chamber's own written policies. Wow. So, after this had came out, Governor Cuomo did resign as we're all aware of. So my first question to the round table is how do we feel about the investigation and the way that 
Cuomo left office. I did not realize the investigation was that deep. To be honest with you, I originally thought that it was investigation. It was an investigation based on the claims that women brought, and that they went and talked to people around those folks. So I didn't realize that they went on quite a treasure hunt. Um, now knowing that. Um, it makes me feel a little bit more confident in the summary that I did see um, to know that they were that thorough and didn't rush through it. Um, but it's still unfortunate that you have an elected official um, that has to, you know, you have this disruption and you just wish he were, he made better decisions so we wouldn't have had to go through this during this time. You know what I mean? This is just like the worst time to have to go through this transition, not to say that the new person coming in isn't capable, but you want continuity of leadership that you can depend on when you, I don't know, going through a pandemic. I mean, if that's not too much to ask. Right. And it's just, you know, after hearing that, I just, like I said, I, I've talked to people who, <clears throat> and read a lot of things about people who said he had a reputation for being affectionate. Um, and he even said in his speech while resigning that something about a line moving, which to me made me feel uncomfortable. Um, I don't know how anybody else felt about that. Um, I don't know. I, I wish he just hadn't said anything <laughs> really regarding it. Just apologize and, and leave. But yeah, that's kind of... I, wow, just wow. But I, 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 I don't know. I'm rambling here. In short, I wish it never happened. And I, and I wish that those people hadn't experienced that because that has to have tarnished their ability to move forward in a lot of ways, especially when you have someone like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I also feel a lot better knowing that the investigation was so thorough. Um, but also I read that he really kind of rallied around the behind the Me Too movement. And so that was really disturbing to me, you know? And I was thinking about how this relates to the bigger conversation of men that, um, you know, talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. And this is a prime example. And so then he's saying, oh, you know, I didn't realize I was being too affectionate. And at some point he brought up his, uh, his family being Italian, I think, or something like that for why he was so touchy feely. And yeah, so, um, you know, it's like, but you were behind the Me Too movement. You said that you understood what all this was about, but you were being, you know, too affectionate. And, you know, it's so funny that we keep saying too affectionate because those are like what his team was saying, right? But we know that it wasn't just that. That's not, that's not how it was. And he also retaliated against the people that came out or one of the people that came out against him. I mean, I, this was just horrifying. So... Anna, I, I kind of want to address that, that term to affectionate. And I know it's not your term, but what does it mean to be affectionate? It means to show love and give love. And he doesn't love these women, right? So he understands he was doing something wrong, first off, to even admit he was too affectionate. He must, at, to some degree, understand that he did something wrong. Um, I think also it's really good to know that they did such a thorough investigation. And even though these women haven't seen justice yet, it does provide 
I would assume a little bit of, um, I guess, an extra band-aid, if you want to put it cheaply, on the wound that he was investigated as thoroughly as he was. But let me let me pose the question: If he, if he wasn't in public office, if this was just some big corporation, um, you know, Jerry from Subway, for example, or some other large corporation with a spokesperson or some public figure, if they had done anything similar along the lines of what Momo did, they would have been kicked to the curb too. So I don't think that we need to be like, oh, poor him, he was forced to resign. No, he effed up and the company doesn't want him anymore. The company, AKA the United States of America, doesn't want him anymore. So he needs to get out. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with wanting him out and saying, you know, you need to leave. This is the United States. You can fire anyone for any reason you want. It's why do we need to give him any more benefit of the doubt when there are 11 women saying this man did something wrong? He is saying in a quote unquote nice way he did something wrong. I was too affectionate because my family is Italian. Well, you know what? This is in Italy. Get with the program, mister. To be affectionate means to love. You didn't love these women. You messed up. You couldn't keep it in your pants. Couldn't keep your hands to yourself. Now we want you out. Stop crying about it. I love the way you put that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I agree with all the points that have been made thus far. And one of the things I want to circle back to is something you had said, Anna, which, you know, that Cuomo had championed himself around the Me Too movement, that, you know, he was a supporter, he understood women. And my frustration in the way he resigned which really tarnished his whole reputation he is trying to frame it as right. oh is this political move this is motivated by them wanting to bring me down and no it's not we, we can't we cannot use that line here this right. is not you know we're anti-cuomo having a fourth term although i am but that's a personal opinion of mine that is not what this came from and even in his resignation speech I, I have the lines here he spoke to his daughters directly and said i want them to know from the bottom of my heart i never did and never would intentionally disrespect a woman or treat any woman differently than i would want them treated your dad made mistakes and he apologized and he learned from them and that's what life is all about we'll get into it Oh, I but so. what I want to say about that is it is so frustrating, this rhetoric that happens around toxic men wanting to portray themselves as good guys and the use of daughters and wives to do right. that. The props. This, yeah, this stained, yeah. you know, we, we call them out on their shit. You you harass you sexually harass women period how are you gonna say you never did and you never would intentionally disrespect women and then two lines later say your dad made a mistake and then using your daughters as pawns to make yourself look mm -hmm. like a good guy it shows in and of itself those few lines he doesn't get the me too movement he doesn't understand how toxic 
he was and the type of work environment he created. Right, right. You know what? That's a good point, Sasha, when you break it down like that. Sasha, I like that you pointed out he used his daughters as props. It's like he used his daughters and the Me Too movement, both. And I don't know, that statement was creeped me out. Yes. It just, it kind of like just weirded me out. Like my face. They are politicians. They are trying to save their behinds. He didn't need to mention me too. He didn't need to mention his daughters. He could have said, I made mistakes. I was quote unquote too affectionate. I didn't understand what I was doing was wrong. End of sentence. It, it makes us believe that we cannot trust him. It makes me believe I cannot trust well, it, I mean, I already do not trust power <laughs> like that who will say one thing and then they'll do something else. You know, right. the, the actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what you say. It literally does not matter what you say. And let's think about politicians. What do they do most of the time? They talk. How do they get what they want? They talk. They don't actually do anything. They talk to and at people to achieve things. So why would this be any different? Good points that you brought up there. And yes, the focus on he is a politician. And we had referenced this earlier when we were talking about the poll, but it's something I wanted to bring back because I don't think people quite understand. There is a difference between resigning and being impeached. So Governor Cuomo resigned. He willfully said, I'm going to step down. Side note, that doesn't kick in until August 25th. So he technically is still the governor of New York currently, even with all the allegations. He said, yes, 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 but give me two more weeks, (laughs) okay? And impeachment is completely different. That is when the separate governing body outside of you does an investigation and comes to a conclusion if you are fit for government office. And the difference, big one is, when you resign, it doesn't mean you can't come back in politics. Certain types of impeachment, depending on what the findings were and the final conclusion, can mean you no longer can run. So that being said, when, when I understood this and I said, hmm, Cuomo comes from a family of decades-long politics in New York, big politics in New York. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, he was planning to seek a fourth term as governor in New York. How could a resignation versus an impeachment impact his ability to do such? And not surprisingly, just last week, you know, there were talks of an impeachment can still happen. But just last week, the New York State Assembly Speaker, Carl Hasty, said they can no longer and conduct an impeachment inquiry. They were advised by the Judiciary Committee that the state constitution of New York does not authorize impeaching and removing an elected official who is no longer in office. Wow, I didn't know that. That is, so there's still a door open to this man because you know our memory when it comes to politician runs short sometimes. that's incredible i have no words no words it's created it's created a loophole and you know not only created a loophole but 
we have dollars and cents involved. What a lot of people are overlooking is that before all this happened, Governor Cuomo was already actively involved in a reelection campaign. The account of the reelection campaign shows that up until this point in the year, he has collected a little over $18 million. The, what happens to that money? What I'm so con- I have questions. Bingo. That's the point I'm getting at. Is well, what happens? Because y'all didn't impeach him. Y'all did not say he could not seek re-election. He has 18 million dollars of money he is sitting on. And how do we hold him and his team accountable? I should also say that it was revealed that during this five-month investigation by the Attorney General Letitia James office, from his reelection campaign, $280,000 had been paid out to his attorney. $280,000 is around 1.5% of this $18 million. So what does this mean for New Yorkers, Sasha, since you're there? I mean, how are New Yorkers feeling on the ground about this? There was a fuck Cuomo party in Times Square last week. (laughs) That's how, pardon my French, that's what the party was. (laughs) There there is excitement, but what my fear of is there is so much excitement over his resignation that it's actually washing larger issues away. Right. Like what happens to this money? What happens that now New York State was going to have a huge governor election next year? How does this impact it? There are there are so many things that don't have answers. And while yes, there should be a cause for celebration, I am quite disappointed because an impeachment for me could have meant I don't want to say more, but it could have been equally as important as the resignation. And and it's left this this door open, but I don't think we are going to know which way it swings until years from now. You know, I heard that an impeachment wasn't made because if they had made an impeachment, it would have made him look guilty and he's not charged as guilty yet. I mean, it's not that he doesn't look guilty now, but, you know, by him saying, hey, guys, I'm just going to put him a two weeks notice. I'll probably be back later. Um, <laughs> it doesn't appear as guilty, right? Versus if, if they had impeached him. Hmm. So what does this mean for the 11 women who, I mean, I'm, I'm still listening for the part where, not that I don't believe people in a, are in a space where they're questioning these women, but where's the justice part? Like, how do they, you know, because I, I heard there was some bullying going on and some retaliation. So is there, are there any moves to correct wrongs? And is it okay to call them victors? Should we call them survivors? Both important points you brought up, Francine. So I'll address the first one of what has been done or what is going to be done to right the wrongs. And there hasn't been any conversation around that. And I think that oftentimes is a big part of what's missing when we talk about sexual assault 
I say survivors, but I also say people are allowed to use the word that they feel most comfortable with identifying or, or calling themselves, mm-hmm. you know, after an incident has occurred. But uh, using survivors, I think oftentimes we focus on what happened, but not about rebuilding life after. There isn't right. there isn't support for that. There isn't support to acknowledge even the trauma of having to publicly come out and all you know we know there was backlash in the office we don't know about the dms these women are receiving you know there are people who do support Cuomo and people who you know feel like oh this is just an example of cancel culture I mean um I think it was Alex Baldwin when a Cuomo resigned said this is a sad day for New York City another example of cancel culture and this actually isn't cancel culture. Let, let's not get the two, you know, confused and all the pressures right. that are coming down. And, you know, the in the report that the independent investigators concluded, Cuomo was in violation of U.S. Code 1983, which has to do with what we're talking about is the work in, the work environment itself. So it's not just the sexual assault allegation. It also found that the work environment he created was actually illegal. Wow. Right. Yeah, because I mean, you can't retaliate against somebody if they're going to say, you, you've done something wrong against me. You just can't. I mean, even if you haven't done something wrong, you still cannot retaliate. You have to let the investigation play out and the findings come forward, um, you know, and it, it you, seems like he really was taking action against people who would speak out against him so yeah and i feel for these women who they do have to go back to work yeah that's gonna be hard and i mean if they're not already in a workplace right now they're gonna have to deal with that trauma forever yeah i mean there's some vindication there but still you know there's there were other people that helped maintain that toxic environment you know so he's the face of the problem and he's the he's the one who uh created the the crimes but in toxic environments there usually are enablers that kind of help facilitate that toxicity um so yeah that's that's really unfortunate definitely agree with you francine uh it's unfortunate all too common and leaves a lot of questions uh for the voters of new york and the state of new york and We'll see how this uh, impacts next year's governor's race. No clue. Uh, but with that being said, we're going to segue again on the topic of lawsuits. I don't know why I was so consumed with lawsuits for this episode of Recap. But something I found very interesting, and I'm not sure how many of our listeners or really just Americans in general are aware of this. So earlier this month, the Mexican government sued the United States gun manufacturers and distributors in a U.S. federal court in Boston. Their argument was that the U.S. gun manufacturers are negligent and illegal commercial practices are contributing to the bloodshed in Mexico. The Mexican government, and I quote this, said, brings action to put an end to the massive damage that the defendants caused by actively facilitating the unlawful trafficking of guns to drug cartels and other criminals in Mexico. 
of the Mexican Foreign Affairs Ministry has estimated that 70% of weapons traffic in Mexico come from the United States. And that in wow. 2019 alone, 17,000 homicides were linked to traffic weapons coming out of the United States. This is pretty huge. This is the first case of a foreign government suing U.S. gun makers. Mm -hmm. So my first question to the round table is, do we feel the Mexican government has the right to do this? And why or why not? I want to hear facts. I want to hear arguments because there are a little, it, it's hot. Not everyone feels the same about this. So what's our, you know, what are our thoughts around the table? You know, I'm glad that like they're doing this in a way. Okay, so I was reading that it's not going to be likely that they receive justice from this particular lawsuit. However, I think the point that they're making is kind of incredible just because the, the U.S. has always been so worried about drugs coming in. But it's like, I, I feel like guns have to play a huge part in drugs being trafficked to the United States. So it's like, it seems like, you know, we're shooting ourselves in the foot by there being not a lot of gun control <laughs> and then complaining about guns or about drugs. So I don't know, just, it doesn't all add up. So I'm glad that um, Mexico is like, kind of like bringing this point forward because I truly didn't know that so many guns in Mexico came from America. What? didn't know either that so many guns from Mexico or from the United States were in Mexico. But I do disagree with you, Anna. And the reason for this is because a consumer does something illegal with a product they purchase does not mean you can go sue the manufacturer. That would, and I know this is again a very simplistic example, but that would be like, um, a survivor from a car accident suing the company in Asia for creating the car that caused someone to die. You know, it's if Mexico is so worried about all these guns coming into their country, this is going to sound horrible, build your own wall. Have more control across the border so that people cannot get in with guns. Don't try to sue the United States. And I am very, very against guns. In Norway, again, where I grew up, we only have guns for hunting like a couple of months out of the year. We don't have guns like here in the United States. And when I first experienced someone walking around the grocery store with a gun, I'm not gonna lie, I was a little bit worried. And it was there quote unquote, right as an American to have the gun. Well, if the American laws, if, if the Mexican um, consumer comes to the United States and, um, um, what do I say, what's the word I'm looking for, has all of the requirements to purchase a gun in the United States, it's not the United States fault what that person does with that gun. It's not the person who sold the gun's fault there for what the individual who purchased the gun does with the gun. We, I mean, if we open up to allow Mexico to win this lawsuit, 
all the other countries will sue the United States for all the other horrible things they've done or horrible things they made that are now in these other countries causing people to lose their lives. And I, I read the article where it said that, well, Mexico will fight against the United States in the drug war because it, uh, the United States doesn't want to cooperate in the lawsuit. Well, you know what? The United States is trying to do something about the drugs. How about Mexico try a little bit harder to do something about the gun? For me, I think this is the beginning of a long conversation. Um, I don't think we're used to having this conversation outside of our borders. Um, I think this has been like a, a family argument for a long time. Gun control, take more guns off the streets, so on and so forth. But it is interesting to have a foreign country basically chime in on that conversation and try to hold Americans to account. And, and I don't want to say Americans, this particular organization uh, and, and that's named in the lawsuit. Um, I do think that guns are uniquely placed. I've, I've heard the argument about other things. Anything can be used as a weapon of mass destruction. And I, there is a dangerous precedent set when we say, you know, okay, now high heels won't be used because someone got killed with a high heel. But guns are uniquely placed in the drug trade. So that's why they get special attention. Um, I don't know what the end uh, game is, but at the very least, what it really sounds like to me is Mexico and the United States need to get together and strategize together at their borders and have a meeting of the minds because what they both have been doing has not worked. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, we have this border relationship, just like you have a normal relationship, but you need both sides to participate in it in order for it to work. And I think that that's what will need to be a logical next step. I know there have been soft efforts in the past, but I don't think they've really gone anywhere, not long term. I'm glad you brought that up, Francine, because when I read this bit of news, my first thinking was, oh, they're trying to leverage the discussion. Oftentimes it's seen as Mexico is the bad guy. They're bringing these drugs in. We need to keep these drugs out. And that's how conversations around the border are being built. Mexico said, hmm, funny you talk about bad guys. You guys are also bringing something into our country that we don't want. And they have weapons. And it's the ability of a, of a country who the U.S. has really strategically painted a certain way for many reasons to say, flag on the play, we have something. Mm. And for me, I'm like, okay, how is this going to impact, like you said, how the Mexico and U.S. go forward with having conversations on everything from border security, drugs, you know, weapons, etc. One of the things that I think is a flaw, though, in the argument and could be used against them is the Mexican government is, is suing these companies. And it's not just one company. It's actually a, it's a nice, it's a nice list. Yeah. But these same companies that they're suing are the same companies the Mexican government buys their weapons from for the military and police force. <laughs> that's interesting. That's yeah. an interesting, you know, and that's what leads one to think there's something more to it. But I forgot who said it. I don't think this is going to be a winning 
case, but I think they're trying to score points on the field. Yeah, I definitely don't think that they're going to win. But Sasha, that's crazy. So I literally is the same. So I'm suing you for bringing drugs in that the cartels are using and are related to homicide. But also, I'm going to keep buying drugs, uh, not drugs, although, hey, (laughs) you never know. I'm going to keep buying guns from you. And then that also gets even more complicated when we look at corruption uh, in, in Mexico, but in not just Mexico, okay, in many countries right. with the military and the police. So how, I, while I see the, the point of what this lawsuit is trying to do, there, there are holes in it that legally, I think, ultimately just won't, won't stand up. I think, you know, I believe it was, Carrie, I believe you had brought this up before about, you know, the difference between, hey, I'm selling you a product and hey, what this product did. And it's funny you you brought that up because it pulls us back into our own, you know, conversation within our borders around gun control. And why I think this lawsuit is particularly interesting, interesting is that in the early 2000s, a, a few different U.S. cities actually brought together uh, litigations against gun manufacturers. Right. Uh, you know, they said there's been increased uh police there's there's been there's been increased hospitalization and other costs associated with gun violence who's to blame who do we point the finger to and at that point what happened was gun manufacturers went to congress and got immunity statute so that no longer can happen so this is the first instinct of you know a foreign Hmm. government doing this but also the immunity doesn't apply when the injury occurs outside of the u.s which brings us back to carrie's point of what precedent is this said is this setting if they have immunity but now they don't have immunity right i like to learn more about the players in this space too exactly exactly because we're opening up the door for anyone to sue anyone for anything. I think that what you're saying, I mean, I can draw a lot of different conclusions, but I think it'd be smart to learn a little bit more about the players and if there's a tie-in to past groups and this is a workaround, <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't want to sound conspiratorial because I know that that rubs some people the wrong way, but in, in the sense that, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I now I have concerns. I think I'm, I'm feeling Carrie's earlier points a little bit more than I was initially with this whole thing, especially foreign governments, you know? I just, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's something more there I need to learn. Quick question. Are the American gun companies breaking any American laws? Because they are in the United States. So for me as a business owner in the United States, I have not looked up any laws other than the laws in the United States. And so the way you're seeing it is, this is really an international law question. 
Correct. Are they breaking any international laws? The American gun companies or whatever weapons, whatever people want to deem as a weapon, how do they go about keeping their businesses afloat, having those pre-screenings, doing all, all of the required paperwork and initial legwork to keep their companies legit? How do they know what laws they're breaking? Where are the international laws? How, how do they know? Should there should there even be international laws regarding this? And I mean, of course, there's laws about trafficking everything in the book, but that's a good point. Does Mexico and the U.S. need to go back to the drawing board and rework out border laws that specifically focus on weapons trafficking? And in the meantime, should they just stop selling to any person in Mexico, including the Mexican government. Right. And, you know, I also think about too, like, why? Like, what if they, what if they live in the United States? Are they going to ask them, do you have plans to travel anywhere? Like, is that going to be on their pre-screening question now? I don't think that is on the pre-screen questionnaire from the gun, from, you know, like when you go to the gun, oh, I only know about the gun shops. I don't know about. <laughs> against their right. Yeah. ask them i can't sell you a gun because you say you're going to go on vacation to a different country in four weeks like yeah well i meant the bigger question until they found out who the players were behind the whole government suing the united states to just not sell to the mexican government right now until they i mean if this is an issue then let's put a pause on our gun selling and gun receiving relationship until we figure some things out. And um, I don't know, but this is complicated, like you were saying, Carrie, and I think Anna, you brought up some things too. This is really complicated because we are a country that really prides ourselves on rights to gun ownership, pride in, um, because I'm a quite, I'm just gonna put it on the table. I'm not against people owning guns. I'm not against people having guns i mean i somehow have managed to be around guns and never shoot anybody um, <laughs> and trust me i had good reasons <laughs> but um but i i think this is a another complicated boy sasha you're really putting them on the table today i think this is a complicated one but i think we need to be particularly careful here and not sell the mexican government too short because I, I i still need to find out i need to understand who the players are i just can't see as corrupt, and I, I, I don't mean any disrespect, even though it's going to sound disrespectful, but as corrupt as things have been around the border and in the Mexican government around guns in the past, uh, on their side of the border, not just them talking about us, I, I can't, I don't know, I just don't completely see the picture yet. So, yeah. I, I agree with you. Uh, I also while I am socially liberal and many of my beliefs fall in what would be categorized as the left, I believe in gun ownership. And it's interesting because even that sentence alone amongst my liberal friends, I've gotten, I've gotten looks for saying that. But one of the things, and it's not because, oh, it's just I'm, I'm an American. I gotta get my gun. That, that's not why. That's not, that's, that's not what it is for me. <laughs> you know, 
is that well if you have so much so much distrust in this entity why then would you say take all of my guns hmm mm-hmm. like wouldn't you want to be able to potentially defend yourself god forbid if your government decided to flip on you and people may say oh did you just make that statement oh yes i did because history has showed us and present day events has showed us around the world militaries flip military coups happen all sorts of shit can go down and i want to be able to defend myself against the powers that be if shit hits the fan so as someone who believes in gun ownership as well as holding more you know liberal very very left very you know progressive views it's a tough call for me because these guns are contributing negatively to other humans it's almost a humanitarian issue gun gun violence in and of itself and how do I hold one belief true that I want to own guns, I believe in gun ownership, but also I don't want people dying from gun violence. And oftentimes when we have conversations around guns in the United States, there's no gray, there's no middle ground. You either are all for guns in any form, you can get it any way, or oh my God, guns are dirty, guns are bad, we're gonna kill each other, Kill, kill, kill everyone. We can't have them. Where's the middle? Where's the compromise? You silenced the round table, Sasha. <laughs> uh, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but you know, I think knowing the players, like Francine was saying. So I don't know completely the gun laws in the United States, but can a foreigner come and buy a gun in the United States? Can a foreigner come from anywhere and just purchase a gun? Because if they cannot, then Mexico, sorry, you're shit out of luck. Because then it must mean that, you know, Americans are purchasing guns. Well, then you need to fix your borders. Like, I I mean, I I don't really have anything else to say. I'm really against guns. And I am also a liberal. But I'm really against guns. And I'm really against people owning guns that don't need to own the guns. Because as you just said, there are so many situations where people are like, oh my God, I need my gun. And then accidents happen. But until we know exactly who these people are bringing those guns into Mexico, I feel like we can't change anything. There's definitely more to this story. Definitely. Yeah. And with that being said, I. I think that's where we're gonna have to end. I think both of the discussions today have showed us the gray area of politics. And for our voters out there, what I challenge you to do is when you see news articles, do your due diligence of looking up the facts because oftentimes you find what our round table has discovered, it's complicated. And with that being said, I wanna thank you to our listeners for contributing to this discussion through our social media. This podcast is brought to you in part by Elac Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians, and Pointcast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, please go to our website at Pointcast News or visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to like and follow us on our Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Be sure to join us next time. Take care. Let's take each other.
Let's take each other out.